is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Broscamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro, how you doing? I'm just fine. Just so fine, Allison. How are you? <laughs> I'm just great. In this week's episode, Ron Lieber, you remember him. He's a writer for the New York Times. Well, he's back to talk about scams and why younger people in particular have a higher risk for being bilked. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, one of the most important steps in retirement planning is basically determining how much it'll cost. However, this could be a challenge when the price tag of one of the biggest items in your budget could be anywhere between $150,000 and more than a million dollars. At least that is how much a 65-year-old couple couple retiring in 2021 could spend on their lifetime retirement health care expenses, according to HealthView Services. The range is so wide because the cost will depend on all kinds of factors, such as where you live, even your income, since Medicare premiums are based on your tax return, you know, your current health, health status, and of course, any future ailments that may happen to you. Uh, and to add insult to the cost of injury, that estimate doesn't even include the possible price tag of long-term care. Actually, it turns out that healthcare is unique among the retirement expenses for three reasons. First, it's likely to be the expense that will go up the most when you retire. Uh, unless, of course, you go out and buy an RV or something like that. Vanguard estimates that on average, the cost of Medicare premiums are almost triple the amount that employees paid for health insurance coverage when they were working. People who retire before Medicare eligibility at age 65 can expect to pay more than six times what they were paying for employer-provided coverage. Secondly, most expenses actually stay flat or even decline over the course of retirement. The one big exception is... Healthcare. Healthview Services estimates that current retirees should expect that their costs will rise 5.9% a year every year for the rest of their lives. And then third, healthcare will likely be the most unpredictable expense you'll have in retirement. The amount you spend on things like, you know, housing, food, transportation, entertainment, they'll be within somewhat narrow ranges that are at least somewhat within your control. Uh, But healthcare costs, they're going to vary up on all kinds of things like government decisions, the healthcare industrial complex, and most importantly, whatever maladies afflict you over the rest of your life. That said, it's still important to make a well-informed estimate of how much you're going to spend on healthcare once you retire. And it starts with digging into the current research, which I recently did. And here's what I learned. I basically dug up any kind of study or analysis I could find. And I arrived at a sort of a general consensus for what you should assume your costs will be. And it goes like this. So if you're a healthy 65-year-old and you plan to retire this year, you should plan on spending $6,000 annually on healthcare. And that includes premiums and out-of-pocket expenses. That's per person, so you got to double it if you're married. The figure will go up every year, reaching to around maybe $11,000 by age 75 and then $14,000 by age 85. And again, that's for healthy retirees. The more conditions you have and the more medications you take, things like that, the higher expenses will be. In some cases, twice as much or more. Okay, so those are some numbers to work with when you're estimating your retirement budget. But what can you do to make sure healthcare costs don't sink your retirement? Well, of course, it starts with saving as much as you can while working. And the truth is, future retirees will have to pay more for healthcare than past retirees. So we're just going to have to get more money into our 401ks, IRAs and health savings accounts for those of us who have access to them. It's also crucial to understand how Medicare works. I'm not going to get into the details of the program here, but just understand that basic Medicare doesn't cover everything. 
So most retirees should look into either a Medigap or a Medicare Advantage policy. You'll have many choices. The choices will depend on where you live. Uh, so you need to find the policy that's best for your current health conditions and maybe any future potential health conditions. Uh, these days, fortunately, many online resources can help with the decision, as well as uh, there are some experts who you can hire if you think you need some professional help with choosing the right policy. Also, Medicare and healthcare planning is becoming a bigger part of a financial planner's job. So if you work with some kind of a financial pro, see if she or he can help estimate what your costs will be and which policies are best for you. And finally, be healthy. We've talked before on the show about how healthier people are wealthier and vice versa. Evidence is clear that people who move more and eat right live longer and they need less medical care, which, of course, saves money. But if you need more evidence, consider a recent New York Times article, which highlighted a study published in the British medical journal Open Sport and Exercise Medicine. The study participants were more than 20,000 AARP members who filled out extensive questionnaires about their physical activity throughout their lives. The researchers then pulled their medical records and found that people who began exercising before or during middle age spent $824 to $1,874 less annually on healthcare costs after retiring. The Times article also cited a Canadian study, which found that people over the age of 65 who were physically inactive incurred $1,214 more in healthcare costs each year. Those are Canadian dollars, so it's a little less than U.S. In, in U.S. dollars, but the study was from 2010, so I assume the figure is actually higher now. So to wrap it all up, in the words of Dormant Coughlin, the researcher who led the recent British-American study, quote, it's never too late to start. And that, Allison, is what's up. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Usually, Ron Lieber joins us to talk about paying for college or raising money-savvy kids, but this time, it's a little different. This time, it's scams. Ron, always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. I am not here to scam you, I promise, but you should be careful of me anyway. <laughs> you are a savvy man, so if anyone knows how to pull off a scam, it would probably be you, but thankfully, you use your power for good and not evil. Um, yeah, Everyone knows, everyone knows that it's the elderly who are more likely to fall for scams for a lot of reasons, right? Like they might be senile, they don't understand technology, they can be too trusting. So what caught my attention about your recent New York Times article was the headline, the young fall for scams more than seniors do. Wait, what? Seriously? I'm not going to accuse you of any isms, although you're welcome to confess to any that you wish to confess to uh, right here in front of all of your listeners. Um, but I will confess, right, that uh, I decided to to do these pe this piece to, to write about it um, because there was a, a letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks before I uh, did the column, um, basically just pointing this out in response to uh, you know, an op-ed that had been written by somebody old who was who was uh, effectively sort of self-owning on the you know quasi-senility front, and the Better Business Bureau wrote in and said, actually, the reverse is true. And I thought, wow, um, uh, clearly I'm ageist because I would have just you know assumed that the elderly fell for scams more often. I need to figure out what this is about and then try and you know shake some people in their 20s or their parents or whatever by the shoulders and explain it to them. Yeah, well, I think one maybe one of the reasons why 
we why we think this and why I thought this and why maybe I was being just purely ageist, but also like the really good juicy ones are the like the Nigerian scammer, the, the Nigerian prince who needs you to wire tens of thousands of dollars. And so we maybe have such a limited view about what a scam is that maybe young people think, well, actually, you know what? Young people just think they're, they're immune to everything and they're, they can't fail at anything. So maybe there's also that there. Um, but yeah, so to go like a, a little fun trip down memory lane, the whole reason I work at The Motley Fool is because of a scam. Because before The Motley Fool, I worked at the Council of Better Business Bureaus and I spent my days doing interviews warning people about scams. And my job was pretty easy because reporters love covering a good scam. So there I was at NPR ready to talk about the grandparent scam on Talk of the Nation. And who should I run into but an old neighbor friend named Diana who worked at The Motley Fool. 10 years later, here I am. And only now are we talking about scams on our podcast. So anyway, back to the topic at hand, scams. Why do you think young people are actually more susceptible to scams? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily a false presumption of invulnerability. Uh, I just think that we probably need to have a more expansive view of scams in the first place, right? Because uh, a lot of people do what you did. They sort of, you know, default, default to the, you know, Nigerian prince or princess thing, um, or the kind of scam that will be turned into a movie, right? Um, because those are the things that get, get written about, because, you know, they're outrageous. But the fact of the matter is, is that those kinds of things are relatively rare. Um, the scams that are most frequent are among the most mundane. Um, some sort of fake retailer attempting to swindle you out of your money by getting you to buy something that isn't as advertised or never comes in the first place or is fake when it does arrive, right? And so um, just on the mere uh, a basis of frequency, right? Um, again, not to be ageist or make too many assumptions, but I, I do think it's safe to say that you know people in their twenties tend to purchase more of their stuff online than people in their seventies do. Um, you're just likely to be exposed to more stuff, and when you're exposed to more stuff, the bad stuff is more likely to trickle in. Yeah, there's if there's a fun rabbit hole you can go down on the internet of um, people buying clothes like prom dresses on Instagram, but they end up buying it from some company and the dress they get is just an absolute train wreck compared to the one they thought they were going to buy. Like that is that's a fun trip to take on Google. But yeah, you're right. I've there's all these like ads that I get where I'm like, oh, that does look like a really good outfit, but I have never heard of this retailer. Like I just don't know that I trust trust these people enough to send them money. Um, but yeah, I guess younger people are maybe more comfortable with doing that. Yeah. So Clive Thompson wrote a terrific piece. I think it was on Medium a week or two ago about how Instagram is the new Sky Mall. You, you remember that catalog that used to be in the back of the uh, in yeah. the back of the airplane seat, showing all sorts of you know enticing, but like like eighty eight percent enticing, but twelve percent outrageous and suspiciously so. Um, you know, goodies like Instagram kind of feels this feels like it's the same way now, um, and so I, you know, just to like put a finer point on it, I mean, there's a couple things going on with the retail scams. One of which was seems pretty obvious when you think about it. The other one, which was not obvious to me at all. The first one is that, you know, Amazon's so big, it, it stands to reason that people are going to do a lot 
of work trying to impersonate Amazon. And that is true, right? And it's not even so much selling crappy products, although there's plenty of that that goes on. And you know, many people will self-identify as being a scam victim if they buy something that is um, you know, poorly made or fake or whatever. Um, but there are a lot of other people who impersonate Amazon in order to get you to come to their fake website to input personal information that could then be used to steal money or commit identity theft. So anytime you get a message from Amazon, you should be very, very wary. Um, and you know, Amazon itself uh, is well aware of this problem and has you know posted a bunch of tips to help people um, spare themselves from this hassle. But the thing that really surprised me, this the second tip. Um, uh, comes from the fact that an incredible amount of online scams, according to the Better Business Bureau data, um, are related to uh, online purchases involving pets. Um, and uh, during the pandemic, it was it was up to a third uh, of all scams had something to do with you know some kind of animal um, or goods for said animal. And the average loss for people who fell victim to this was $660, right? Which suggests that it's not a leash, but the thing that the leash is attached to, right? And at a time when, you know, so many of us were desperate for like something to hug other than the three people or zero people in our pods, too many of us were falling for, you know, we've got your rescue puppy, just lay down your credit card. Oh yeah, the puppy scam. That one, I I am familiar with the puppy scam. That was back back when I was in my Better Business Bureau days. That was still a problem, and that's how I made one of my best reporter friends, David Kolker, over at the LA Times. We became best friends working on a story about the puppy scam. Um, and the one that I'm familiar with is essentially you see an ad for a puppy. Maybe it's on a website. Maybe it's on Craigslist. Maybe it's it's somewhere online, and they basically say, "Well, this was the this was the most specific example I remember." Okay, the puppy is um you buy, okay, the puppy's yours. I just need to ship it to you. So I'm going to put the puppy on a plane. You just need to go to the airport at this time and place and pick up the puppy. And so you pay them um you know, thousands of dollars. I mean, it's often like a pretty nice dog. You're sending you you know, everyone wants a something doodle these days, right? And so they're pretty expensive. You send them the money and then you go to the airport and you wait and you wait and the dog never shows up. So then you go back to the scammer and you say um I remember one woman in particular, she went back to the scammers and she said, where's the dog? The dog didn't show up. And they're like, oh, it's something really bad happened to the dog. The dog got sick. We had to take it to the vet. We need you to send money for the vet bills. So the woman was like, oh my gosh, my dog is sick. She sent hundreds more dollars for them to pay this vet. Um, that of course didn't exist. And then, it, and they kept going back to her over and over again saying, okay, now the dog is stuck in quarantine. So you got to pay money to get the dog out of quarantine, all this, all this kind of things back and forth. Finally, the woman's like, I'm not paying any more money. And I remember talking to the woman who had just sent thousands and thousands of dollars to these scammers for this dog that she thought was her dog. And she says to me, I just still feel so sorry for that dog. And, and I probably could have been a little more gentler with her, but I was like, ma'am, there was never a dog. And like, even, even after thousands of dollars, she still thought that there was this dog at a vet that she needed to save. And it was so heartbreaking, but that happens all kind. You could sub any number of different things for a dog, whatever is like super in demand that could happen with. Yeah. I mean, there should just be like, um, you know, a public service announcement, you know, campaign where somebody's buying banner ads and it just says, 
there is no puppy, right? right? Like your default assumption has to be that there is no puppy. Um, and if you want to be sure there's going to be a puppy, uh, you know, you need to find someone that your friends have dealt with successfully before, or in the very least, um, you know, go to the American Kennel Club, read all of their tips on avoiding puppy scams backward and forwards. And like, that's where you start. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a lot about the different online retail scams. So buying products that don't turn up, buying products that are fraudulent, wiring money to people for things that are never going to come around. Um, and there's another one right now that is kind of preying on the times, the kind of our times here, and that's employment scams. How do these usually work? Yeah. So there are all sorts of fake ads out there, um, in particular on, uh, you know, large sites, uh, large em employment ad sites like Indeed, although Indeed is by no means the only one where this shows up. It happens on LinkedIn and other places. Um, there's just only, you know, so much that these sites can control. And, um, you know, people will, will put up ads for fake jobs. Um, often they are the sorts of jobs that might appeal to a young person in one of two ways. Maybe it's uh, an assistant job. Right, particularly in a you know creative or otherwise attractive industry where working as an assistant might be the way that one would plausibly break in, um, or it's a you know some sort of warehouse or or, or shipping or, or, or forwarding or um, you know work from home uh, type job, which is particularly attractive as even as we come out of the pandemic. Um, and so they'll put those kinds of jobs up. Um, and often they will even go to the lengths of interviewing you via video, um, sending you a formal offer. And then that's the point that they ask for your social security number, right? And try and steal your identity. Or if not that, they'll say, okay, just one more thing before we start. You know, there's a package of materials that, you know, we need you, um, you know, to pay for or uniform or something, right? Um, before we get started. And that's when they take your money and disappear. We have a, a, a friend of ours and he lost his job. He worked in the restaurant industry, but as like a corporate level kind of. And somehow when he was looking for a job, um, they somehow were able to gain access to his email. And from there, everything just fell apart. Like they got access to his phone. They got access. They locked him out of all of his email accounts, out of his phone, out of, out of everything. And it just sounded like a nightmare. And for someone who's already in a really bad situation, who can't afford to lose anything more. Yeah, it's 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 truly awful that this happens, you know, in this particular circumstance. And of course, it happens much more often when people are in trouble because, you know, criminals prey on the vulnerable. And there were a lot of people, you know, 16 or 17 months ago in particular, who were feeling extremely vulnerable, right? And so, you know, what is there to do about this? I, you know, I think part of what people need to remember is that, um, it's worthwhile to hit the pause button for a second and go out and search for this supposed employer, right? Are they registered with the Better Business Bureau? Are they incorporated? Um, is there a website? Does the website have you know spelling or grammar mistakes? Um, should you um, you know bring in a friend or a trusted relative um, you know to, to to cast a skeptical or even cynical eye on whatever it is that you're about to step into I you know I think all these things are worth doing yeah and I don't think there's any reason is there any reason you should have to give someone well I guess if they told you they gave you a job then you would then you would maybe fall for giving them your social security and all of that like that would make sense that would be an easy next step I guess so yeah that's rough all right, uh, let's move on to another one. And this one is a, 
is this one takes many different permutations. It's, it's it can happen in many number of different ways, and that's fake check scams. What is this one? How does this one work? Right. So um, let's start first of all with why the young are particularly vulnerable here. Um, it is entirely possible that any given 24-year-old who you might stop on the street uh, has never encountered a paper check in their entire life, right? Or if they have, they can count on you know, one hand, uh, you know, the number of times they've received one, they've never written one, their bank account um, doesn't offer one. There are all of these sort of newfangled, quote unquote, neobanks that never send you checks. You can't even have them send a check out on your behalf, right? Um, so there, um, people in their 20s are, in fact, at a severe experiential disadvantage, right? Now, imagine a check shows up in the mail and you've got your WhizBang Neobank app um, and you know you can just deposit the check and, you know, the money shows up in 24 hours or less and, you know, seems reasonable to you, right? Um, the return address is maybe from Amazon, right? You know, you, you could plausibly be receiving a, a, a refund from them. And um, and then there's something else that people need to know, right? Which is that there are um, federal rules uh, requiring um, money from a check to hit your account, uh, you know, within a reasonable period of time, right? So maybe you're skeptical, but the money shows up in your bank account, and you're like, "All right, well, the bank thought it was a good check, so I'm good to go." But no, that's not actually how it works because the banks themselves often can't figure out for sure that the check is fake until a week or two or three after it hits your account, and yet they are supposed to put the money there uh, right away. And so during that in-between period, um, the people who sent you the check may then contact you again and say, oh, whoops, sorry, we sent you too much money. Um, and this may often happen with a, um, a new, a quote unquote, new employer, right? Who's not really a real employer, um, who's maybe offering you a quote unquote signing bonus that isn't actually real, right? And then they say, oh, we overpaid you by accident. And can you please send back 600 of the $2,000, right? And you send back the 600 bucks, and then you find out a week later that the $2,000 wasn't real, and then your bank's mad at you, and it's essentially on you. Um, so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a common, common form of the scam. Yeah, it can, it's man. I remember this one just took so many different forms. Like maybe you were a secret shopper, and they would give you a check and tell you to go secret shop somewhere, and then pay them. And and part of the secret shopping would be wiring money back to them and telling about your experience with Western Union. Um, I I feel like small business owners sometimes, like let's say you're a photographer and a client's like, well, I'm going to pay you with this check, and then can you then I'm going to overpay you, but then can you take some of that extra money and then send it over to this other person who's going to my floor for example. Um, this one comes in so many different shapes and sizes. Um, and it's that waiting two weeks that is really going to save you a lot of grief. I think like two or even three weeks. I don't know exactly what the, how long, but there it's that waiting on it before you act that's really going to help because then you'll figure out that the check didn't just bounce. It was just fraudulent to begin with. Yeah. Um, so a, a funny story from my own personal experience, um, you know, it is uh, necessary to be vigilant. Um, it's also possible to be too cynical while simultaneously not being vigilant enough. So I had a check show up um, uh, about two years ago uh, for $500. Um, I could not figure out um, 
who these people were um, who who were listed as sort of the the payee. I did some Googling around. I found an address actually not far, far from the Motley Fool headquarters. Uh, I wondered whether the Fool was paying me for some or another, um, uh, you know, past podcast appearance. You guys aren't going to send me a check for this appearance, are you? Um, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on it. Don't cash okay, it. Okay, <laughs> good, good. All right. All right. So, so anyway, so I, I, I put the check aside, um, and I just thought to myself, all right, you're a smart guy, Ron Lieber. Um, don't embarrass yourself here by like falling for a check scam. Um, and then a year later, I got a tax form from the same entity saying like, we've told the IRS that we paid you this money, even though I never cashed the check. So then I was going to have to pay taxes on this money for the check that I never cashed. So I tried to cash the check and the check had expired. <laughs> oh no. So, so I, so I, I put it aside for a couple of months cause I was so annoyed at myself and, and the, the end of this long story was that um, the money was in fact from like an affiliated entity of my employer for like a, you know, extra bit of freelance work I had done. So it was actually essentially um, coming from the times or, a, you know, a times partner. Um, and uh, I had just blown it um, oh. because, because I hadn't, I basically, I put like 10 minutes of work in trying to figure out who these people were. Um, if I put in, you know, the extra 10 minutes that I put in a year later, I probably would have cracked the code. So, um, you know, I was lazy. Don't be, don't be lazy when checks, checks come in the mail because they might actually be real <laughs> and then you might get taxed for them by your own employer. <laughs> so you were, you were hit double. That's, oh, that's painful. All right, let's move on to the last one um, that you call out in your article, and that's student loan scams. This one feels like another another example of people taking advantage of a pretty common trend in this country right now. So here's the you know the sort of um, backdrop for this. Uh, what's going on right now is that um, last year the federal government hit the pause button on federal student loan payments for anybody who didn't want to pay anymore. They just hit stop on interest. They hit stop on fees. Um, they said, we're just going to opt everybody out of this, you know, roughly 40 million people. Um, if you want to keep paying, you can, um, but we're going to have to opt everybody out right now um, because we know people are suffering and we don't have time to figure out who's truly suffering and who isn't. So we're just going to offer um, the so-called forbearance to everybody and not charge interest in the meantime. So that's been extended and extended and extended. Um, but later this year, uh, it is probably going to expire. Um, and so at that point, a whole bunch of people will be able to afford um, to pay uh, at that point, but some people may not be able to because they're still suffering for whatever reason. And so what is almost certainly going to happen then is some version or derivation of all of the student loan scams that we've seen in the past, where some reasonable sounding entity shows up and says, we can get you a better interest rate. We can get you in a better loan. And all you have to do is turn over your you know, federal student loan login information to us, let us take care of it, and just ignore any messages you get from the entity that's servicing your federal loans right now. And all sorts of people are desperate, behind, um, in default, and are willing to do that if a reasonable um, person or a reasonable sounding company shows up and attempts to help. 
And then what ends up happening is that um, you start paying um, the scammer instead of paying the federal government um, and, and the government servicer, uh, or you end up having your identity stolen or any number of terrible things. So that is another one to watch out for. And you can bet that they are going to prey on the vulnerable later this year who can't afford their payments when the student loan system cranks up again. Wow. Um, well, we've we've talked about a fair number of scams. There's obviously a lot more um, out there. What's your best advice for either identifying a scam or preventing becoming a victim? I'd say a couple of things. Um, first of all, as ever in the world of personal finance and money and foolishness, um, you have to be emotionally honest with yourself about um, whatever feelings you're feeling at that moment or in that period that may make you feel vulnerable. A lot of work has been done uh, on the sort of you know self-reported traits of people who fall victim to scams. And what the experts find again and again is that if you are lonely or experiencing stress, you are more vulnerable to scams than the average person, whether you are young or old, right? So got to stop and really ask yourself, right? And, um, uh, you know, how am I feeling today? How am I feeling this month? How am I feeling this year? Um, and if I am both lonely and stressed out, uh, I need to be especially careful, right? So just have an honest conversation with yourself about where you're at, um, particularly when somebody is making you some kind of offer that seems too good to be true, um, or seems like it could instantly help you out of whatever jam that you are in. So that's number one. Number two, Slow down. Slow down. Right? You may be in a vulnerable situation and feeling like you've got to act instantly, right? Particularly if the phone rings and it's, you know, supposedly the Social Security Administration and you're like about to be arrested. Um, the Social Security Administration is not going to call you on the telephone. Neither is the Eternal Revenue Service. Um, uh, you're going to get, uh, you know, official mail on official looking stationery. Um, so just take a deep breath. Um, even if somebody does call and you're convinced you're about to be arrested, stop, take a breath and call like the five people you trust the most and run this by them. Right. Um, so that's like the more serious stuff, right, where they're threatening arrest and they want money or social security number. Um, you know, the less serious stuff involves the kind of retail scams that we were talking about before, where, you know, you might be out a whole bunch of money, but it's not going to like wreck your life for years through identity theft. And then again, in those instances, right, um, if there's something you think you really want to buy, um, there is no harm in waiting an hour or a day, or seven days for that matter. And that gives you, a, you know, time to kind of catch your breath, um, take a look at this uh, entity, a closer look that supposedly has the puppy that you've been wanting for 18 months and will allow you to cut to the head of the whatever doodle line, right? Um, and get off the waiting list. Um, and uh, for any number of reasons, uh, you know, as you cool your jets over those coming days, you may decide that you don't really want or need the thing after all. Or if you still need the thing, um, that the entity trying to sell it to you um, may not be on the up and up um, because it's easy in the moment uh, for all of us, including, you know, um, quasi experts uh, to fall victim to this sort of stuff. And it doesn't make you 
dumb, right? Thieves are smart. Um, we're all vulnerable, at least some of the time. Um, don't beat yourself up and don't be embarrassed to, you know, ask for uh, a second look from a trusted friend or relative. Yeah. I, I love that advice. And it, it, it does take me back yet again, 10 years ago, actually it was a long, it was longer than that when I was talking about the grandparents scam and ran into, into Dayana and what was so, I hate to say genius about it because it's a horrible thing to be scamming grandparents, but how that one worked was as a grandparent, you'd get a call and it would be someone saying, grandma, it's me. And they would be like, Oh, is that you, Tommy? Yeah. Yeah. It's me, Tommy. Listen, I messed up really bad, Grandma. I went to Canada. I got drunk. I smashed the car. I'm in jail in Canada. I need you to wire money to my lawyer. And so right there, it's giving this sense of urgency. And like a grandmother, of course, a grandmother is going to do everything she can to get her kid out of jail. Um, And then, well, okay, well, and, and to your point about just stopping and talking to someone else and saying, does this check out? You know, if the grandparent would then say, well, let me talk to your parents. I got to call your parents. They would say, no, grandma, don't tell, don't tell mom and dad. They're going to kill me. Like, it's just, I really just need you, grandma. Don't tell mom and dad. So then right there, then it cuts your grandmother off from then even verifying that this is even true. Whereas if they did just then call their parents, their parents would say, no, they're here. They're, I'm staring at them right now. Or no, they're, they're safely at college. Um, and so everything you just said was a perfect example of taking advantage of someone who's not dumb, right? They just love their kids and their grandkids uh, and the urgency and the cutting them off from getting a second opinion. Um, and that is, it, it really is a very genius scam as much as I hate to, <laughs> hate to call a scammer a genius. It, it worked. It was, it was pretty successful of a yeah. scam. Well, right. And so now let's think about what you've been doing here in your host capacity, right? And, and what I've been doing a little bit in the guest capacity. We've been telling, you know, some somewhat self-effacing stories about ourselves or people that we know, right? And so if we're trying to keep this sort of thing from happening more often, why not be more kind of honest and vulnerable ourselves in sharing the stories of the times when we've gotten this wrong? And in particular, if you're a parent and you've got a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a, you know, a 24-year-old kid in your life, tell them these stories, right? It's, it's great dinner table fodder. Um, and if you're a teacher and you're lucky enough to you know, have permission from your school district uh, or your curriculum director to, you know, talk some about personal finance during classes, build a whole day or, or a whole month, right, a- around like awestruck studies of like some of the wildest um, and most lucrative scams in existence. And, you know, treat it like art history, right? Because, I mean, there, there is an art um, to stealing, um, and, you know, we should approach it, you know, with, with awe and, and wonder and, and ultimately outrage, right? But, you know, we should take a scientific approach and a storytelling approach to this stuff um, so that people know a little bit more when they run across it. Ron, that's so on brand for you to bring it back to educating kids. I love it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's it's a it's always a great time when you come by and talk to us. So come back again, huh? I I always read your articles, and I encourage all of our listeners to, of course, keep up with all of your writing over at the New York Times. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure as ever, and I am always findable at nytimes.com/lieber. Perfect. Look at that. You got your own vanity URL. He must be good. 
right, that's the show. It's edited vulnerably by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.